Our Father, we have known you for a while, and those of us who have understand that so much is banking on our hiding more and more of self, bringing to death that which is flesh, and having the Spirit of God reign sovereignly in our lives. Father, we understand that so much of what we have accomplished in the past was pure flesh. And we have come now to see that it is vital to our souls. It is vital to our families. It is vital to our church that we die. That we die more and more to self. And live more triumphantly in the power of God's Spirit. So that we might accomplish that which is lasting and divine. Instead of that which is human and carnal and fleshly. Father... We do not sing idly. We are not here to, to spend a minute or two singing a sweet song. We are here to pour out the desire of our hearts. We have done it in music and we say of a truth. More of you, O oh God. More and more and more of you and less. Less of me. Father... This is not about me. It's not about the people who stand with me. It is about you. And our fondest desire is to see you glorified and magnified in our midst in such a way that men cannot be in our presence without having tasted something of the divine. Might there be something so magnetic about our testimony? something so powerful about our witness that the non-Christian world at least will know that there is a God in their midst. A God who has gone to utter extremity to bring salvation to a wicked and sinful people. We are that people. And we have come not to bring sacrifices, O God. We've come to lay hold of the sacrifice. Everything that is needed for us is provided. And so we come to lay hold of it. Everything that is needed for our eternity is symbolized on the table that is set before us. We come. We come not to give. We come to take. We come to lay hold of the sacrifice of Christ. And by our so doing, leave it. Leave that table to go give worship to the God who alone deserves it. And now, Father, accept our praises. You are great and greatly to be praised. A part of our praise comes via our giving money. Use these monies for one purpose, the advancement of the kingdom of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. God's word and turn with me, open with me, to one of the pastoral letters found in the back of the New Testament, the letter to Titus. Paul's letter to Titus. Before I read it, just a word kind of uh, a brief introduction. I, um, I, I wonder if you know how vital is this nomination of elders that we do here in September. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a program. This is not like a men's retreat or a women's supper. This is, this is the heart and soul of what takes place in a church 
because you are establishing leadership. You are choosing under the influence of the Holy Spirit those men who will lead you. And so I felt it necessary to say at least a little something concerning this vital period in the life of Gracie Van. And while I was away I, in my own devotional life, I uh, came upon Titus 1, and uh, the Spirit of God really ministered it to me, and I hope it will minister to you. But let me read it to you first, uh, and we'll begin in verse 1 of uh, Titus 1. We'll read the whole chapter. Follow as I read. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, nor not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and uh, commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works, they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the Word of our God endures forever. Ladies and gentlemen, after Paul identifies the author in verses uh, 1 and uh, 1 through 3, says a little bit about his own calling, he then identifies the receiver of his letter, that of course being Titus. Now, if I were to mention names like um, Jotham or Jehoiada or Abijah, you might not know much about those characters and their contribution to the overall advancement of the kingdom. But when we come to this name Paul, everybody seems to know a little bit about Paul. Paul, uh, first of, we first know him as this master theologian who crafted this treatise, this theological treatise that we so enjoy uh, individually and corporately on Wednesday nights, the book of Romans. We know Paul as, a, uh, as the first missionary of the church. Um, uh, three missionary journeys that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. There, were a, there was a fourth, but its details are not given us. We know him as a missionary. We know him as a theologian. But what you find him doing here in this setting is, uh, is Paul a church planter. Uh, he is writing to Titus, one of his uh, mentorees, and telling him certain things about how his job is supposed to be done. 
And so really, my text begins in verse 5, where he says, this reason I, for this reason I left you in Crete. Now, Crete, of course, is an island off the coast of Greece or in the Turkey there. Um, uh, it is uh, a place where, Ta- where, where Paul and Titus had done some missionary work and had planted a church. And so apparently, in the course of this church planting adventure, Paul leaves. And he leaves Titus behind. And, uh, and having left him behind, he then gives some instructions as to how this job that he's playing, this role that Titus is playing, is supposed to be performed. And because Paul writes to Titus about how his job is supposed to be performed, we are left with uh, a few inspired insights as to how a church is supposed to be set up and how a church is to function properly. Now, guys, this may be dry as dust for you, but uh, it is very important. I think you'll see one of the importances before we're finished. But this is the stuff that we call, oh my, church government. It's what Chuck Swindoll called a necessary evil. Uh, I think Paul would agree. But within every collection of God's people, like this one, when there is a collection of God's people, there exists this, not a small need, ladies and gentlemen, a giant need to organize them in such a way that the greatest amount of good can be the result. I remember when I left seminary, and there's a lot of things that you learn in seminary. <laughs> but let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of things that you have to unlearn and then learn uh, after having left seminary. They, they, they say that it takes you five years to get over your seminary education, and, and there's some real truth to that. But there are things that when I went into the ministry, I, n- I had never done before. I had never run a church meeting. I had never uh, been a moderator of a session. I had none, done none of that. And it was my opinion that church was just... It was just one giant Bible study. And everybody got a bunch of happy people would regularly get together and study the Bible together. And and if the Bible study was good, oh, the church was on its way and was off and running. I found out soon, ladies and gentlemen, that 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 is utter naivete. Whenever you get a group of Christians together, a need exists. And the need is to organize them in such a way that the greatest amount of good might be the result. Now, fortunately for us, we're not left in the dark about all matters of church government because the part of the New Testament addresses it. And what we can learn here, in this little portion of God's Word, uh, about church government has to do with the purpose thereof. That is, the purpose of church government, I think, can be seen in Paul's comments to his brother Titus. And I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that there is an an initial, kind of an intermediate purpose, but then there is a fundamental, ultimate purpose that Paul mentions here in this text. And that's what I want you to concentrate on today. Kind of the initial, intermediate purpose, which is subservient to the grander and the fuller and and the more important, ultimate purpose of church government. So first of all, look with me at what Paul says to Titus. He says, now, now, Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. Here's the purpose of you being left behind, Paul, uh, Titus. And it is that you, Titus, should set things in order. 
Now that's the, that's the uh, kind of the intermediate secondary purpose of church government. I left you over there, Titus, so that you could set things in order. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do you see the implication of that? If, if Paul's design or his intention was to make sure that Titus set things in order, that means that the condition of a, gun, a bunch of gathered Christians is disorder. That is when you get a bunch of people together, especially sinners like us, um, the result or the, the condition, the initial condition of that group of people will always be disorder, chaos. Um, this array is the natural state of things. And if you're not careful, it can get worse. You begin with this array, and if you're not careful, it'll get worse. And then add to that, ladies and gentlemen, that the Bible says that God is a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14. Did you know it said that? And so, Paul's concern with this pastor that he left in Crete is that he organized things to set things in order. Because, as we all know... When you put a bunch of Christians together, <laughs> man, again, you get some disorder, some disarray. You know, the kind of the mental picture that came to my mind, um, well, it was actually two things, but the first one that came to my mind is Pigpen. Not, not, not a Pigpen, but the Peanuts character, Pigpen. You know, the guy whose hair is all out of array, and his dirty clothes, and his shoes are untied, and all that business. Well, then, as I thought more about Pigpen, I thought more about a hairdo. <laughs> that may be strange, but, but, you know, ladies and gentlemen, when I get up in the morning, there are strange things that have happened to my coiffure uh, in the night. And, you know, I, I get up, you know, sometimes, I mean, right, right around 6.30, and, and I, I, I kind of try to stumble to the um, uh, refrigerator and get a glass of orange juice, but the last thing that I want to do is look in a mirror. Because there's usually this nice little point to my hair, you know? And, um, and I pass the mirror and I think, oh, ooh. And then I think, well, you know, you need to go out and get the paper. But you don't want to step one foot out that door looking like that. So you need to go do something with that hair's do of yours. Now, in addition to that, that's tame next to what my wife does. Now, her hair, I must say, looks better than mine in the morning, uh, but I mean, but when she gets ready to go out, there's a whole lot of taming that's got to be going on. You know, I've often wondered what it would do to the energy crisis of America if we just didn't fix our hair. We've got so many apparatus uh, in our bathroom. You've got these things, and you've got these things, you've got these things, and you've got all kinds of little things that have to go on. And then you've got mounds and mounds of hairspray that have to be used so that order can be brought out of chaos. And I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, that church government, that's the purpose. That's the initial purpose of church government. When you get a bunch of folks like us together, boy, there's some strange people in this church. Starting with the pastor. Um... And you get a bunch of us like that in the same room and we're trying to do something good for the kingdom. 
<coughs> there's a whole lot of hairspray that's needed. There's a whole lot of disheveled hair out there. And somebody needs to, you know... So that it will, it will present an overall portrayal of beauty. Gang, I'm saying to you that church government works like hairspray. And that's what it's supposed to be doing in terms of bringing order to the initial condition of chaos. Now, now just think. Just think if there were no government here. For instance, let's say there was no um, standard by which theology was measured around here. And everybody just taught whatever it is that they wanted to teach. What do you think this place would end up being? So there has to be some kind of something that's put in place so that order might be brought to chaos. That's the initial. But ladies and gentlemen, it's not the most important. There is a, there is a more ultimate, a, a fuller, a richer description of Paul's purpose of church government. But before he gives us that, he gives us some qualifications of the men who might just be capable of acting like hairspray. He gives us, in verses 6 through 9, a description of men that might be useful to bring about that order. And ladies and gentlemen, don't touch one of these. Don't touch one of them until you've read that. Because those are characteristics of the kind of men who might just be useful to bring about some order. But here's what I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen. I want to suggest to you that verses 6 through 9 are utterly parenthetical. I want to suggest to you that the, that the text really ought to be read like this. Uh, look at your copies. Set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, in my translation, there's a big dash there. Appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, jump over to verse 10. It begins with four. Substitute the word because. That's a word that we know better. Uh, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you because there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouth must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching which the, that which they uh, ought not for the sake of dishonest gain, one of them, etc., etc. Do you see the point, ladies and gentlemen? I'm saying that the description of the elders that are found in verses 6 through 9 is utterly parenthetical. Because Paul is saying to Titus, Titus, I left you over there because I want you to accomplish some order out of the disorder. But here's my real purpose, Paul. My real purpose is I have such a concern for the well-being and the spiritual health of the people that comprise that church in Crete that something has to be in place so that they might not be harmed. We have got to put in place, Titus, some kind of system that it will allow the people of God to flourish. But if you don't, in fact, Titus, because you haven't up to this point, do you see what's happening to the people of God? Oh, they're both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert 
whole households. Ladies and gentlemen, do you get it? Paul's, you know, we've, we've seen him as a theologian, we've seen him as a missionary, we've seen him as a church planner, but here is this great pastor's heart. And he looks at his friend in Titus who is over in Crete trying to get a church functioning, and he says, Titus, Titus, you've got to put in place some, some structures because as I understand it, because there's no structures in place, whole households are being subverted. People are running willy-nilly in your congregation there, Titus. And they're doing it for nothing but financial gain. They're deceivers. They're producing all sorts of division. So, Titus, appoint some elders in that congregation. Men who will be capable of structuring things so that the people of God might not get hurt. You know, guys, just kind of as an aside, this is very interesting, or at least it was very interesting to me. I hope it will be to you. But um, did you notice that all this difficulty and all this wrong teaching and deceiving and idle talk and fable and all of that, did you notice? Get this. It was coming from inside the church. Uh, they profess to know God. Verse 16. This, this cancer that existed in the life of the body came not from out there. It came from inside. And if you don't set in place certain structure by which order is brought to disarray, that cancer is going to spread, Titus such that whole households are going to be undermined and ruined and fall from the faith. So Titus, get busy. Get busy, Titus. The, the kingdom of God... And by the way, notice in verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. You know, ladies and gentlemen, that's not up there in that description in verses 6 through 9 of the elder. But I'll say this. It's certainly a negative. There are people in your church, Titus, that they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. They're practical atheists. They make a profession with their mouth about knowing certain things when in fact their lifestyle, their choices, their behavior deny the very profession that they have on their lips. Oh, my friends. That's a description of people Inside, not outside. And so it becomes utterly imperative that certain men are chosen by the leadership of God's Holy Spirit. That these men might be in a position to provide the kind of structure so that inside that structure the people of God you know, it's, it's interesting to me also as I read this in a screened in porch in Dustin. I, I, I saw the Apostle Paul, even in church government, was concerned about lost men. Isn't that amazing? 
Paul is concerned about the impact that we're going to have on lost men. And so he's saying, even our church government should serve the purpose of reaching the lost. So what we have to do, ladies and gentlemen, is begin to beg. We need to begin to beg, not men to serve. By God's richest blessing, Gracie Van has been given great male leadership. You saw that last year. But I'm suggesting we don't beg them to serve. No, 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 ladies and gentlemen. We begin to beg God that He lead us to the right men who will be able to function within the body of Christ in such a profound and powerful way that the rest of us will have souls that are utterly flourishing. And without that, ladies and gentlemen, chaos is the potential. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a joy to me to take a passage of Scripture and I think ferret out the mind of God. And I hope you see it. I hope you see that what goes on here in the month of September, I hope you see what is at stake. Shall I read it again? Who subvert whole households? Um, teaching fables? Mouths must be stopped. Idle talkers and deceivers? Um, defiled and unbelieving? Is that what you want to exist in our church? No, 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 no. So what we must do is simply heed the instructions of Paul that he made to Titus. That's organized in such a way that disarray is minimized. And there's going to be certain men that will be able to best do that but ultimately our concern is that once this is set in place, you and me and my wife and my family, our souls can flourish. Real quickly, the kind of men that you're looking for, they are men who see the utter importance of their task. They are men who understand that whole households are at stake. They are men whose life matches their talk. Oh, my friends, they'll be watching. We are looking for men whose profession is utterly supported by their lifestyle. Thirdly, we're looking for men who know enough. They don't have to be master theologians like myself. They have to know enough to stop mouths that speak foolishness and fable. They must be men who want to be used ultimately to reach non-Christians. They bring into the leadership of this church a burden for lost men and women. And so they do what they do because they want the people of God to flourish so that those people might be useful to reach them. That's what we're looking for, ladies and gentlemen.
For you as the congregation, do this. Pray. Don't touch one of these until you've prayed. Number two, nominate with reverence and fear. Don't take this casually because whole households are at stake. And then thirdly, I invite you to seek the confirmation of other Christians. Go to other brothers and sisters that are perhaps more mature than you think you are and ask them, what do you see in this man? Because ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, our whole household is at stake. Let's pray. Our Father, I do thank you for your word that is an utter piece of exhilaration for us. I, we long to know your mind. We not long to be able to handle it with greater uh, accuracy and faithfulness. Enable us, O oh God, to move forward as we plant a church and do it in a way that brings you pleasure and your people prosper. Now, O oh God, now we get to go to the table and remember afresh the very thing that brought us into the kingdom in the first place, the death and sufferings of Jesus Christ the Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen.